Okay, well, good morning, good morning, good morning, good morning, and good morning, Damascus Road. If you have your Bibles, and hope that you do, turn to the book of Matthew, which is the first book in the New Testament, and we'll be in chapter 4. If you didn't get one, uh, know that there's a study guide uh, available now. You just take one. It's for our road groups, and it will go through and summarize uh, everything about um, this particular text, and it provides you questions, and these are the questions that we use in road groups. It has a bunch of other information in it, some introductory information, some a few appendixes, uh, some places for prayer, and so there's a lot to learn from this book, and so we hope you'll take it and use it uh, for study. So uh, I'm just happy to be here. My, my wife just had her, uh, her our fifth Feels like her, because she's the one getting the least amount of sleep. Um, and so my rhythms have been a little jacked up for about a month, and I uh, haven't preached for about a month, and so um, my wife was like, I'm so glad you get to rest. I'm like, this is not rest. This is borderline hellish for me, because it's a rhythm of my life to do this. And I said, imagine I asked you to stop you know, taking care of the kids and watching the house for a month. How would you feel? She's like, that would drive me nuts. Welcome to my world. So um, I'm glad to be here, and we're going to get right into uh, Matthew chapter 4. This text deals with something that's pretty familiar to uh, all of us, whether you're young, old, educated, uneducated, rich, poor, tall, short, ugly, good-looking. It applies to you and to me Uh, you either have or are or will experience what the Bible calls temptation. We've all heard that word. And when we hear the word temptation, I think we naturally, or our minds naturally go to the place where we think about being enticed to make wrong decisions or engage in bad behavior or to break good rules. That's kind of where our mind goes. And it should Uh, Without doubt, there are real temptations that uh, entice us to really sin in ways that really grieve God, our Father. But what we have here is the temptation of Jesus Christ. It's not the only time He is tempted, but it is the time, the most intense time that He is tempted. And what we see in His temptation is um, something that takes us beyond maybe just simple decisions or behaviors, or even breaking rules to see exactly what we are really being enticed by our enemy to do. The great reformer Martin Luther said it this way, and this is how I want us to think about this temptation, but all temptation as we read this text. He said that the sin underneath all of our sins, sin underneath all of our sins, is to trust the lie of the serpent that we cannot trust the love and grace of Christ and must take matters into our own hands. That's what temptation is really about. So I'm going to read Matthew chapter 4, 1 through 11, and if we follow along with me, this is the temptation of Jesus that we'll be looking at and perhaps dig into temptation a little bit differently today. God's Word says this, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, Well, it is written, 
Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdom of the world and all their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan. For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. This is God's word, and I want to pray. Father, we thank you for your word. I thank you for the true history of Jesus really experiencing a confrontation with the devil. A temptation and a battle that I can't imagine facing. Something that I'll never experience in the way that he did. In that intensity. I thank you for his temptation. I pray we'll learn today something from it, Lord. That you'll move me out of the way. Let your spirit speak what he needs to speak to our hearts. Whether it be words of conviction or words of comfort. Remind all of us, Lord, who find ourselves in the wilderness that you are there with us. It's in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. So... What we have here, or what we have prior to here, I should say, is that you have the genealogy of Jesus and the virgin birth of Jesus, and that showed that Jesus had everything required to have the ancestry of the lineage or the right to be king. And then you saw, uh, not last week, but a couple weeks ago, when Nate preached his baptism, where he proved that he had the required approval and empowerment to fulfill the mission of the king. And now we see this temptation where he is going to prove that he has the required character to be the king. Now, the entire scene is a, is a veritable replay of the original temptation in the Garden of Eden with our first parents, Adam and Eve. And where Adam failed, Jesus fully succeeds. Instead of silently, which is what Adam did, listening to Satan's lies and ultimately disobeying God's word, Jesus proves that he is our blameless, sinless, sold-out-to-God representative that Adam was supposed to be. Jesus is our sinless substitute. He is the only one who lived a perfectly obedient life that I should have. And Jesus is the one who died the death that I deserve for my disobedience. Jesus proves he is the only one who never, ever, ever fell short of God's glory. The only one who lived in perfect submission. The only one who can represent me before God, rescue me from my sin, and restore me to wholeness. That's what this picture shows us. He's the only one. But the Bible says that after this incredible baptism and all this glory that had happened in that moment, he is immediately led into this wilderness experience where we learn this. And the same spirit that empowered him is the same spirit that led him into this place to be tempted. That should cause you to pause for a second. That it says the spirit 
led him into this place. You may have experienced this. I certainly have experienced this. The idea that the greatest of temptations often come after those moments of great exaltation and victory. Whether we're more vulnerable, whether we're just not really thinking, I'm not sure, but we see consistently in Scripture and boldly right here, after this moment of, man, this is my son, who I'm well pleased, he is the king, listen to him, and then suddenly, boom, he's going into a major temptation. And I've seen how the blessing of a new marriage, the blessing of a promotion, the blessing of planting a church, the blessing of a new child coming into your home and causing you to lose hours and hours and hours of sleep can actually create environments that are incredibly ripe for temptation. It's weird that in these moments of of like, woo, this is awesome, that some of the darkest moments can come perhaps most difficult. So it's not by accident that Jesus finds himself in the wilderness. He's not dragged there either. But he is led there by the Spirit into this wilderness by design. Now, God doesn't lead him into temptation, but he does lead him into a place where he'll be exposed to it. We've got to be careful how we understand that. So we appreciate when God leads us into good things. We love it. Thank you for giving me blessings. But do we realize that and do we appreciate the times when he leads us into confrontation with bad things? Because he does. So what is wilderness exactly? Well, at some point, if you are a Christian... You are going to be led into wilderness. And it doesn't just happen once. I believe it happens multiple times in your Christian walk or Christian life. Some of us have been there. Some of us perhaps are there right now. Some of us aren't really sure how you even figure that out. Now, literally, no one knows for sure exactly where the wilderness is that Jesus was led into. There's a couple different places it could have been. We do know that the area between Jerusalem and the Dead Sea, that actual literal geographic area, is a wilderness called Jeshimon, which means the devastation. For some, wilderness is that place or that time where you are literally devastated. Devastated physically, devastated emotionally, maybe devastated financially. For others, wilderness is that place where you just really feel lost, you feel uncertain, you feel confused, you know you have to make decisions, but you can't figure out what the right decision is. It's wilderness. And for some, wilderness is that place where you just feel empty, you just feel hungry, you just feel dissatisfied with life, and you're not exactly sure why. It's wilderness. I believe wilderness is the place where God actually takes you to be alone. What do you mean by that? It's the place where, check this out, it's the place where there is no one and nothing that can help you fix the problem that you have. 
There isn't a solution that's obvious. And because of that, wilderness becomes the place where I believe you are tempted most to compromise, tempted most to disbelieve, tempted most to sin in order to resolve that problem apart from God. Wilderness is that hellish place, right? We all have that hellish place, whether it's a minor irritation that's constantly there or a major devastation, where you are desperate for a Savior to rescue you from it. And the temptation is to find something or someone other than Jesus to do that. So why does God take us into these places? It just seems mean. seems capricious. No one wants a wilderness experience, but guess what? We all need one. We all need one. See, God chooses to take us to a place where we only have Him. Where He's the only one that we have to help. He leads us into these places and these times so that we will get close to Him. Now, the English word for tempt, when we think about tempt, it always, in English, means to entice a man to do something wrong, to sin. But the word in Greek is probably better understood as testing and is often translated as such. We are tested in the wilderness. We are taken into the wilderness to be tested, to have our faith tested. Whoa, 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 whoa. Faith tested? That should feel yucky. It did to me. Because what it, you hear the word test, and it sounds like God is on some kind of exploratory pass-fail exam to see whether you got faith or not. Whoop, you suck, Sam, so I guess you don't have faith. That can't be what it is. Why? Because God's omniscient. He already knows whether I'm going to have faith or not. He doesn't need a test. Whoop, fail or pass. Well done, righteous brother. The Apostle James gives its insight into what he's talking about. In James chapter 1 it says, Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. See, Satan tries to break us through temptations, through testing, through trials. And God uses them to build us. Satan intends for us to become weaker and and more brittle. But like the tempering of metals, God intends to reinforce our faith. He turns up the heat a little bit, not to burn us, but to harden us in a very positive way. To strengthen us and to make our trust in Him stronger, our bond to Him stronger. Now, all that to say, wilderness is not the enemy. That's what I want. We're always like, I just need to avoid wilderness. No, you need to dive head first. Wilderness is not the enemy. In fact, we are often so distracted by the difficulty of wilderness that we actually ignore the real danger in the wilderness. We're looking around like, this is hard. And we're creating a situation where the enemy's like, 
licking his chops. We have a real enemy. And this passage and others show us that we have a real enemy who, like a hungry lion, is walking around the wilderness looking for someone to eat. You are under assault by an enemy. The devil is real. The best thing that the devil could accomplish in our lives is for us to be convinced that he actually isn't real. That there isn't a spiritual element to this world. That we're not under assault all the time. Now, I went to a charismatic school. I'm not a charismaniac, but they are on one side of extreme where there's like a demon under every rock and like, you know, if someone's angry driving, you're like, yeah, it must be the devil, you know, after me. Like, no, maybe you just suck at driving. But the idea is you can't go to the other side and say, well, everything is just a matter of, you know, situational things. It's, there is an enemy. There's someone attacking you, unleashing you, assaulting you. In Ephesians 6, it says, firing missiles at you constantly. This enemy has over 40 names in Scripture. Did you know that? Including Satan, Lucifer, Prince of Darkness, the evil one. Matthew uses the devil, and there are no physical descriptions of the devil, but our culture has created some pretty um, creative uh, versions of him. But that's not from Scripture. What we do know about the devil, and it's important to know your enemy, is that he's a creation of God. An extremely beautiful creation. An incredibly wise creation. He was one of the highest ranking angels who rebelled against God because he wanted to be God. God cast him out of heaven along with a third of the angels. How many that is? I don't know. I'm thinking it's a lot. Okay. In Luke 10, Jesus talks about it. He says, I saw Satan falling like lightning from heaven. That's pretty fast. From the beginning, the devil's agenda has always been to rob God of glory. To rob God of glory. He does that at times by hurting you, but that's not his primary thing. He wants to rob God of glory. And he does this, as I said, by destroying God's people, by trying to destroy the Savior. We saw that at his birth. And as we read today, because he couldn't destroy the Savior, which he'll still try, and he thinks he did at the cross, which was, who fooled you, epic fail, right? We see that he tries at this point to get Jesus off mission. Maybe I can't kill him, but maybe I can get him off of what he's supposed to do. The devil is a creation, though, okay? Meaning, he is not all-knowing. He is not everywhere present, the temptation you receive, it's unlikely it's directly from Satan. He certainly has global influence, and that's why there's probably a heck of a lot of angels slash demons under his control. But he is not all-powerful. He can only do what God gives him permission to do. He is a defeated enemy, but he's a very defiant one. But it's important to understand the power that is within us for those who are in Christ, for those who are dwelt by the Holy Spirit, is greater than His power. His temptations are relatively predictable, and that's what we see here. 
since the garden, the enemy has appealed to the same three things every time. And the Bible calls it lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life. I think it's better described, and I think I heard Rick Warren say this, the desire to feel good, the desire to be independent, and the desire to have more. One of those three things is typically what your temptation is coming. The desire to feel good, the desire to be independent, and the desire to have more. Now, the great philosopher Russell Wilson says... You know what he says, right? The separation is in the preparation, right? Boom, got Russell Wilson in my sermon, rocking it. But it's true. Like it, Jesus knows everything there is to know about the, the enemy. Everything there is to know. He created him. But that doesn't make him overconfident as he goes into the wilderness, does he? What does he do? He prepares. Now, he is somewhat preparing for himself, but he's really preparing for us. First thing Jesus does, as he's in the wilderness, right? He, he goes into wilderness. What's the first thing he does? He prepares for battle by fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. I don't know how long you've ever fasted. I've fasted a maximum of one day, and it killed me. I got to like the 23rd hour, and I was, those verses of like, don't let anyone see you suffer for fasting. I'm just like, going in the room like this sucks right it was horrible no come out how you doing i'm great god god be praised it was it was hard but i imagine at that 23rd hour what it was like at the 39th day going dang i'm hungry now 40 days oh my goodness so that's how he prepares for battle which is a little counterintuitive like i'm going to go into the most difficult battle i've ever had and I think I'll go ahead and not eat for 40 days. That'll make my mind sharp, right? It seems very different than how we might approach it. But by fasting, here's what Jesus is doing. I believe he is actively declaring that I want you, God. I hunger for you, God. I need you more than anything that this world has to offer God right now. Pastor John Piper I love how he describes fasting. He says that Christian fasting at its root is the hunger of a homesickness for God. And if we don't feel strong desires for the manifestation of the glory of God, it is not because you have drunk deeply and are satisfied. It is because you have nibbled so long at the table of the world. Our soul is stuffed with small things, and there is no room for the great. Jesus wants to make room for the great. And as we find ourselves in wilderness, as we look around, if we're able to step back and go, okay, I'm in wilderness at this point. This is difficult. I believe we need to actively remove whatever worldly distractions might hinder our communion with God. It may not be food. Maybe your phone. Right? That's our culture right now. I think fasting is a different maybe thing for us. We think like I'm not going to eat. I'm not sure how difficult that is anymore. I mean, it's difficult, but try turning your phone off for a day. I bet you'll feel suffering a lot more. I can go without a hamburger, but not my iPhone. Right? A wilderness 
when you have a wilderness experience, it can easily lead you to escapism. And by that I mean you start to look for the things in the world to distract you from what actually you need to focus on. That can be substances, but it can also be technology. Like those things that you go, well, I just don't have time for my devotions. Those are the things I'm talking about that you may have to remove in order to prepare in the wilderness to focus on what actually needs to happen. To really get away with God, not just get away. But he also prepares himself differently. He prepares himself with the Word. And we could go on this for a long time, but more than likely Jesus spent those 40 days because he didn't come, the temptation didn't come until after the 40 days. So he didn't spend those 40 days just like, you know, whittling wood. I believe he spent those 40 days replaying and, and going over what he had memorized, which is the entire book of Deuteronomy. This, uh, the book of Deuteronomy was the last book that actually Moses penned right before the Israelites went into the wilderness. I should say in the midst of the wilderness, I'm sorry. Before they left the wilderness. Before they walked into the promised land where Joshua would lead them in battle. The greatest battle that they would fight. It's called the second law, that being Deuteronomy, because it's pretty much a review of what was written in the Exodus, God's law. And so Moses believed, knowing that they were going to go into this great battle, they're leaving wilderness, they're really in the midst of it, they're going to go in this great battle, Moses believed that their best defense, the last thing he wanted to write to them, was what God had already said. It wasn't something new. It was to return to what God had already commanded. And this is where all of Jesus' responses come from the book of Deuteronomy. When he's throwing down the Bible, it's from the book of Deuteronomy. Christ didn't trust his ability either, as we read the verses that he, that he quotes back. He didn't trust in his ability to memorize a bunch of scriptures about behavior, which is nothing wrong with, with that. There are plenty of verses like that. But we see that Christ actually sought to remember and respond to the devil with scriptures about God himself. And the reason why is because temptation isn't simply the enemy's effort to to disobey everything God says, right? Don't make temptation so pathetic. Temptation actually is the devil's effort to break your belief and trust in who God is. That's what the Garden of Eden was. It wasn't just that, oh, you can eat it, it will be okay. It's that God is a liar. God is holding out on you. It was about God. And so wilderness and that temptation that comes in it is not an attempt just to like make you do something bad. It is for you to deny God to deny who he is, to disbelieve in his love, to disbelieve in his justice, to disbelieve that he is wise and in control. It is about God. So Jesus doesn't appeal to something new. He basically presses into who God is. And as I prepared, as we look at the temptations themselves, as I was preparing the sermon, I thought to myself, like, what was, what's been my most recent wilderness experience? Because there, as I said, there are many. And so... I think it was actually about six months ago, and it didn't end until December 21st when we ended or made the decision to transition our churches. That was a really hard time for me. Chris could tell you that. The elders could tell you that. Maybe you could tell me that. Um, but it was difficult, and it was difficult because it was the first time in the life of our church 
where I ever felt like I was in a complete fog. Like God was not showing me anything. And I wish I could say, like, clearly this is wilderness. Time to fast and pray. Like, that wasn't what happened. I more got irritated and frustrated and wrote pages upon pages of trying to figure out things. But I knew God had led us to that point. I knew God had led us to that point. God had placed us into wilderness. Placed me into wilderness. Us into wilderness. But I honestly, I felt empty for about six months because God seemed silent. And I'm not sure in that time that I really depended on God as I should have. In fact, I probably would say I didn't. And without doubt, I was tempted by the enemy's lies. And I think I may have believed a couple of them. I became very fearful, very uncertain, unlike I probably have been, again, at any time in leading this church. And it wasn't until I began to literally, and this is not, I, wouldn't, I didn't read this passage and go, this is what I'm going to do now. We got to the point where we had to make a decision. We decided to start praying and fasting. And suddenly I got clarity on things. Suddenly those fears that I had were shown for what they were, which I think were temptations. And the clarity that we, when we came to this decision, and I am, I, I am joyful of our decision. I need you to know that I have 100% confidence in Chris Rich leading this church. I'm excited for Chris to lead this church. I'm excited for last week when he preached because I think for the first time in a, in a real raw way, he like said, you want to see my heart? There you go. Right? And it was awesome. I could never preach that sermon. That's not my story, but that was his story. And so coming to that decision was, it's good. Doesn't make it any less difficult, right? But it does make it more peaceful. Like I can still be in wilderness, but I can be peaceful in wilderness. And that's where we're at. Now, these temptations, and as we go through, let's go through all three of them, they were really real to me. And a sermon was very different until uh, actually yesterday morning when I realized what my wilderness had been. So take it for what you will. You get a little exposure to what I've been going through the last few months. But the first temptation that comes to Jesus, it comes when he's weak. It's been 40 days, and his stomach is empty, and he's hungry. And the temptation is really for Jesus to find his own satisfaction, or maybe make his own satisfaction, as opposed to trusting that God is going to satisfy him. Satan is going to attack you where you are empty. Where you are empty is where you are vulnerable. What do you mean by empty? Well, be careful when you start feeling hunger pains for success or a deficiency of respect or a hunger for love or for the affirmation of others. But guess what? That's where Satan's going to get you. Wherever you feel empty. What will happen is you'll be convinced that you shouldn't feel empty. That this is not where God wants you to be, and so you will try to fill up that God-shaped emptiness with something that will never satisfy. Our flesh and our enemy wants to convince us that suffering is not the way of God. 
that difficulty is not the way of God, that, that Christianity should be easy, should be a blessing, should always be a joy, should never feel any sense of pain. And that's just a lie. It's not sinful for Jesus to make bread out of rocks. What is sinful is depending on something or someone other than God for life and satisfaction. And when we begin to fear that there's something other than God that we can't live without, when we begin to fear starving, if I don't eat this, I'm going to die. If I don't have that, what happens is you start to try and control everything. And you start to try and make your own way. And any effort to control, I believe, especially out of fear of loss, is a refusal to trust that God is in control. And more than that, it's a refusal to trust what God has said. See, when Satan actually attacks Jesus here, he's not just attacking his hunger. He's attacking his identity. Like, having been declared, you are the son at his baptism, what does the devil say? Well, if if you're God's son, prove it. Do something. When you begin to doubt who God says you are, that's when you begin to feel empty and you begin to believe you need something more than the Word of God to confirm or prove that you're somebody. I'm someone because I'm smart. I'm someone because I'm rich. I'm someone because I'm liked. I'm someone because I'm moral. I'm someone because I'm in charge. It should always be, I am someone because God says I am someone. And that's We live by the living words pouring out of our living God. And to avoid the emptiness of an identity crisis, you need to continually feast on God's word. Feasting on God's word is the one thing that will line you, that will blow out all the noise of the different things coming at you and remind you who you are that you don't need to control things so that you can define who you are. That's just the first temptation. The second comes at Jesus a little bit differently. He doesn't come where he's weak. It actually comes where he's strong. Instead of being tempted to make his own way, Satan tries to twist God's way a little bit and pervert it. He takes him to Jerusalem. He sets him on the top of the Uh, temple, pinnacle of the sanctuary, and he challenges him to throw himself down in order to prove that he is God's son. Be who you say you are. He uses a move from Jesus' own playbook, right? He quotes scripture to him. Challenges him to jump. In essence, it's like the royal, triple, dog dare to the best Awana student ever, okay? That's what's going on here. Satan is saying, look, you believe the word, don't you? You just said you did, Jesus. Said you eat it all the time. Live by faith. Show you really trust in God's word, that you really live on God's word like you said. But see, Satan's manipulating God's word. He's using it, but he's twisting it. 
Historically, the Jews actually believed that the coming Messiah would mark his arrival by coming and standing on top of the sanctuary, the roof of the sanctuary. Satan knows that. In essence, Satan attempts Jesus or tempts Jesus to ascend to his rightful position. Like, take your rightful position. You know you're supposed to be king. And he does it through spiritual sounding but unbiblical shortcuts. And as I thought about my own recent wilderness, I found it was a very real temptation to pervert God's word to get my way. Very real temptation. People do it all the time. Pastors do it all the time. Pastors will set these biblical sounding goals like we're going to make disciples and we can plant churches and we're going to spread the gospel everywhere, and then they try and justify their strategy by taking a verse out of context or corrupting an entire sermon series at times. By God's grace, the elders have not done that. But I'll tell you right now, it's a very easy temptation. When you want something or you think you want something, to go, hey, I'm going to take this verse because that sounds like it'll help my case. And people do this because they want to be biblical, but they don't really like the biblical that God offers. Right? That God's ways of doing things, they don't always agree with my ways. So like Abraham and the whole Hagar-Sarah thing, I'm going to kind of help him out in fulfilling his promises. See, Mary and Joseph and Jesus at a very young age, Even his disciples, they all know that God has said Jesus is going to be king. They all know that. So Jesus here is tempted to doubt the way God's going to bring that about. He's tempted to follow his own ways or twist the ways of God a little bit because God's ways, they might be a little bit slow or irrational or inconvenient or less spectacular. See, he's tempted to do something that really, as I said, is seemingly biblical to really test God's faithfulness. He's going to come through with what he said. He's tempted to do something shocking, which would be shocking if he, like, woohoo, swan dive off the pinnacle of the temple and then, like, ooh, landed there. People are like, oh my gosh, that guy's rot. Would they be thinking about God or were they thinking about Jesus? Would they send Jesus to the cross? Or would they make him king right there? Satan uses scripture. I should say abuses scripture. But it doesn't stop Jesus from rebuking him with the right use of scripture. And he pretty much just says, look, I'm going to defend God's honor. You don't test God. You don't test God. You don't try to force God's hand and manipulate him into fulfilling his promises. So, in order to fight this, this is what I believe we need to do. You need to say this to yourself over and over and over again. I am God's servant. He is not mine. And I will have what he wants me to have, the way he wants me to have it, when he wants me. 
I am God's servant, he is not mine, and I'll have what he wants me to have, the way he wants me to have it, when he wants me to have it, all praise to God. That's how you fight that temptation. And the third and final temptation that Jesus endures, the final attack goes, I think, at the heart of all temptation. He doesn't tempt Jesus to make his own way, to twist God's way. He just simply says, why don't you take this path over here, which is the way of the world. Jesus is taken from wilderness to this temple, to this very high mountain. This is an amazing scene. And he has shown all the kingdoms of the world in all their glory. So think about this scene, right? He not only sees every nation, every government, every people. He sees them in all their glory. So what he sees, I don't know how this worked, but what he sees is all their power, all their technology, all their wealth, all their pleasure, all their art, all their beauty, all their architecture, everything you could ever covet in their culture. He has shown everything. Everything in the world. How would you do with that temptation? We fall for much less. He's shown every desire possible that is offered in the world. And we can't forget that this is the world that Jesus actually loves. This is the world that he came to save. I think it's a very real temptation for Jesus. It's not simply an offer of power. It's an offer for the king to, in many ways, rule this kingdom that he came to save. He just has to bow to Satan. Just bow your knee. Just, just bow your knee. Just worship me. You can have everything. I don't want it. It's all yours. Just worship me. Because Satan will give you whatever you want if it will rob God of glory. That's his goal. Jesus' desires are not so weak. What do I mean by that? He desires to have infinitely more than all of the best that the world has to offer combined. See, that's the problem. We settle for so little. This is how C.S. Lewis wrote it. He says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition, when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a vacation. Our desires are not too strong. They're too weak. We settle for so little. We cannot compare, but we try the kingdom of God with the kingdoms of this world. Jesus doesn't simply want to have a kingdom. He wants the kingdom of God because he knows that nothing can compare with the weight of 
of glory of the kingdom of God. What C.S. Lewis describes as infinite joy. You know what we all desire most of all? We most desire contentment, which is what joy really truly is. And because we are not content, we search for all kinds of things, and each of us find our own flavor to satisfy that discontentment. When God said there's only one thing that will truly cause you to be content and give you infinite joy, and that is me and my kingdom. Jesus' response is bold. He's like, get out of here, Satan! I love it! We're such a timid people. Oh, I'm attacked by the enemy, right? He is a defeated enemy. (laughs) It's not on video, praise God. But when's the last time you rebuked Satan to his face? Now, we only have the authority to do that in Christ, but we have the authority to do that in Christ. To say, get out of here. You know what's really good at that? Martin Luther. Guy was bold. He's like, quit lying to me, Satan. Oh, you're a sinner. Yeah, I know that already. And so does Jesus, but he loves me. Get out of here. That kind of boldness. Quit offering me this stuff in the world. It can't compare. It can't compare. His response to him is the first commandment. Simply says, You worship the Lord only, and you serve Him only. Worship and service go together. Do you know that? Defeating His temptation is is more than just a disposition. No, I'm going to worship you, God. It's I'm going to worship and I'm going to walk. I'm going to worship and I'm going to serve. I'm going to worship and I'm going to give. I'm going to worship and I'm going to do. Those go together. Worship is an action. It's not just some attitude. Choosing to worship God means choosing to serve God. And choosing to serve God for Christ meant choosing the cross. We realize what he chose compared to what he was offered? In that moment, on earth, he was given the opportunity of everything the earth offered. He chose the cross. He chose an execution at the hands of the people whom he came to save. Christ conquers Satan. And he does it by winning our salvation through what? Giving up control. Through giving up control. He achieves power through sacrificing. He rises to wealth by giving it all away. The very opposite of all the temptations that Satan threw at him. And those who receive salvation, those who come and believe in Jesus Christ, those who declare, I am a sinner in need of rescue, are not the ones who are strong and accomplished. The ones with the courage to admit that they are weak and the courage to take up the cross and walk in all humility. Jesus didn't go into the wilderness for himself. He went in for us. He suffered through the greatest temptation that is possible 
so he might be able to help those who are tempted in their own wilderness. God says in the book of Hebrews that since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Do you believe that? Because I know your mind thinks like, well, he hasn't been tempted like me. He wasn't tempted with some good-looking girl. He wasn't tempted with finances. They're all the same. They all go back to the same things. And his temptation was infinitely greater than you could ever experience. He was tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then, knowing that truth, draw with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Jesus understands any and every temptation you're experiencing right now. He understands the wilderness that you've been in because he's been there. Don't believe the one enemy, one lie, I should say, of the enemy that, as Luther said, is, well, you cannot trust the love and grace of Christ, so you must take matters into your own hands. That's a lie. We don't go into wilderness by accident, unarmed, or alone. The king is on the throne of grace to give mercy when we fall in the wilderness and grace to get out of it. We can be encouraged that there is no temptation that can conquer us because we are in him who conquered every single one. And God, catch this, wants you in that wilderness. God wants you in that wilderness because he wants you to trust him more. Your wilderness is not a curse. That takes Holy Spirit convincing right there. Your wilderness is not a curse. It is a gift. It is a gift from the Lord to know him more, to depend on him more, and to serve him more through Christ. Don't run from wilderness. Stay in it, knowing that you're not there alone. You're there with Christ. Let's pray.